The following program is being broadcast on the Amazing Women of Power, the world's leading positive programming network, powered by Raven International. This show contains motivational language and may not be suitable for negative listeners. made up to sing unto the Lord a new song. This is Dean Olson, and no, you haven't tuned into the Gospel Hour. It is Songwriter on the Radio, a program that strives to keep songwriters musically fit. And the way I try to do that is through faith and encouragement, learning from the best in the business, and passing it along to you. Now, maybe I might take back the last statement. It could be kind of a Gospel Hour. Uh, I have a two-part episode coming up here. I just got off the phone with a wonderful recording artist and composer who has become somewhat of an institution in the world of Christian music. His name is Gordon Jensen, and as a songwriter, his material has been recorded and sung by countless artists and church choirs all over the world. To name just a few, Written in Red, Desert of My Days, I Should Have Been Crucified, Bigger Than Any Mountain, and Redemption Draweth Nigh, and that's just a few. His songs have been translated into 15 languages, and he's been nominated on five occasions for Songwriter of the Year by the Gospel Music Association. So we're, we're talking about somebody who has walked the walk and sung the song. So please enjoy my conversation with international evangelist and singer-songwriter Gordon Jensen. Gordon, it's an honor to have you on my show today. Welcome to it, and how are you? Thank you, Dean. I'm doing good. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you. Uh, we know each other through J.D. Miller. I just had him on the show recently. Uh, you two are uh, friends, I take it? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I have to admit it's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. It's on the record. Now he can't, he can't change your mind yet. Right. <laughs> Full disclosure to you, Gordon. I'm not, uh, by the way, can I call you Gordon? We have well, talked a couple my, times. That's my name. It's on my driver's license. So just go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, we've talked a couple times. I just want to make sure I'm uh, showing you the respect yep. that the, uh, it seems like a lot of people have shown you respect. You're quite a name in the world of, uh, I guess you call it Christian music. And I'm, I'm not in the Christian music world, so you might have to school me a little bit, okay? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. So uh, you you have some wonderful, uh, if, you, if you go to a, a Gordon Jensen's site, it's Gordon Jensen dot uh org O-R-G. O-R-G. Yeah, org jensen yeah. with an e-n and not an o-n uh right. you can see a lot of the uh and hear a lot of the songs that he has written and it's quite an impressive list um maybe we could just learn a little bit about the man uh i understand you were born in canada and uh like i told jd you probably uh i assume you were born at an early age at a very very tender age that's true being <laughs> uh <laughs> I, I was born in windsor ontario mm. and, uh, 
That happened in 1951. Okay. Uh, giving the mathematicians what they need to figure it out. Right. <laughs> Raised in a, uh, a Christian home, it says here, and uh, yes. he accepted uh, Christ at the age of six, tender age of six. What took you so long, sir? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, Dean, I'm, I'm glad that I, well, I'm, I'm, I don't even know how to think of it otherwise. You know, I was so privileged to have godly parents and uh, gave me a, an early start. They subjected me to the influences that I needed. And uh, I did personally accept Christ into my life at age six. And that allowed me to start uh, on my journey early and start writing songs early. Uh, I know people who were converted, you know, at age 35 or 40. Right. And they still, you know, produced an awful lot of good things uh, after that. But I'm, I'm glad I've had a lifetime to do this. Some people go through 35 years of, uh, you know, uh, wandering and being lost until they, uh, they accept it. And, right. of course, of course, the story doesn't end there, you know, <laughs> but right. it's, it's, it's just beginning. But uh, right. what were the circumstances? Did your parents take you to church one day and there was an altar call or something like that? Well, uh, Dean, it, it may sound a little mystical, but I've been exposed to a lot of this. But there came a point, and it was actually I was at home. It was during, during the week, and I do remember... Uh, I just had this overwhelming uh, sense that I needed to first uh, accept Christ into my life, that I, I needed to, you know, as they say in the church world, get saved. But I, I went to my mother and told her that I, I had this, you know, tremendous uh, feeling that I needed to do this. And so uh, we knelt down at an old green couch uh, in the living room, and she led me in what was called a sinner's prayer. And, I accepted Christ into my life, and Dean, I was just a kid, just a little kid. Right. But it, it felt like the weight of the world came on. Now, uh, in fact, I remember going out, and I, I had this incredible lightness and joy in me, and I was skipping down the street, and I was just, you know, praising the Lord as a little kid. And people probably looked out the window and saw this kid, thought, what's he so happy about? <laughs> <laughs> but I wrote a song years later called It Made News in Heaven When I Got Saved, Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, I can trace that song to that. Did that song get any recognition, or was that just something you privately wrote for yourself? Well, no, I wrote the song, and uh, it, it was recorded by several groups and artists. There's a group out of North Carolina called Kingsman. They're very big in Southern Gospel. Okay. And you, you may have heard the name Squire Parsons. Oh, yeah. Uh, Squire was the lead singer of the Kingsman at that time, and he's the one who sang it with that group, and it... It was, uh, I think, uh, number two on the singing news chart for, I don't know, most of the year. And uh, it, it did get a lot of coverage, other people doing the song. Well, that's great. You know, I was thinking of what I was doing at, in uh, as I was going in the first grade at age six. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't doing any of that. It's young. I, I guess it's that's divine. Young. That is divine, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Because, you know, a six-year-old kid doesn't really have enough uh, exposure and, and, you know, his thought processes haven't reached where you can critically, you know, uh, look at it. it it's, it's a matter of faith and, and uh, inner knowing and experience. So before age six, what was life before uh, music? I assume you had to learn to walk and talk and, and go to school like, uh, like uh, any other boy, but uh, was music in your heart the whole time? Uh, uh, yeah, music's always been important to me, Dean. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a, a brand new grandson, a brand new nine months old. Congratulations. And, yeah. well, uh, my daughter and her husband had not had a child in 13 years. They had two, and, and then, you know, had a, had a baby mm -hmm. last July. And uh, I get to spend some time with him, and, and uh, you know, he's just a beautiful little kid. But, uh, frankly, I do not remember life 
you know, when I was nine months old. I don't <laughs> think anybody does. <laughs> but it definitely happens. So uh, my earliest memories, are, you know, I can't pin them to a date, but I do have memories of being extremely young. Mm. Uh, and and I'll I tell you, Dean, as far as songwriting, there's different ways that God speaks to people and draws them. And uh, I remember uh, there, there, I was just a little kid in Windsor. I might have been four or five years old. Uh, an aunt of mine died, and uh, a great aunt. And But she was, you know, significant to the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember, you know, of the solemnity and, and sorrow, you know, that, that went along with that. And I remember feeling it myself. I was, you know, picking up on all of that, feeling that way. And I remember sitting on, on the stairway, and the, the radio was running. My mother always ran Christian radio in the kitchen, and, and uh, this radio was going, and I, a song began to play. And it was an old Norman Clayton song called Now I Belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Uh-huh. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Uh, that thing really impacted me just as a little kid. And I think that those kinds of things are precursors to what it is that we're drawn toward, and it was a precursor for me, you know, because uh, that song so uh, moved me as a little kid. And uh, I've had Uh, that's quite a story, really. That's wonderful. Uh, sounds cliche, but praise God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you were talking about being, uh, you know, you growing up in, in Windsor. What was life like out there? And more importantly, about your uh, your parents raising you out there. How how were they as people? Uh, you and you have fond memories, and are they still alive? Oh, I, that's a lot of uh, questions. <laughs> I have wonderful memories. But no, my, my father passed on in 1987, and my mother followed uh, in his way. Oh, okay. And uh, there's a 10-year gap between their passing. But, you know, mom's been gone for, what, 17, 18 years. Uh-huh. But anyway, uh, Dean, uh, my folks were, were good folks. They weren't uh, in the ministry per se, although they were very active in ministry. You know, they were, they were not professional clergy, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But uh, godly people. And uh, Windsor was my home till I was eight, eight years old. And then they pulled up stakes and moved to the U.S. They moved to Arizona. Uh, to Mesa, Arizona, and I lived there until I was about 15. Uh-huh. And, and really, the Arizona years are, are my most significant memories growing up, because uh, when I was uh, about 15, they moved back and stopped in, in the Detroit area. They didn't go back to Canada. And uh, But I started writing songs, uh, and I joined a gospel group shortly after that began to travel. So my childhood was over by the time I was about 16 years old. And uh, so the Arizona years are really my portrait Got it. Did your parents nurture you through that childhood in uh, in regard to, you know, chasing your dream and, uh, you know, shaping your uh, identity as uh, somebody who plays music, that kind of thing? They did. Uh, they did do that. Uh, my folks had an old upright piano sitting in their dining room. And uh, my mother uh, played a little bit. And she was determined all her boys were going to have piano lessons whether we liked it or not, and we mostly didn't <laughs> like it. But uh, anyway, I remember my older brother took piano lessons for four years, and, and claims you never learned anything. But uh, I had a piano teacher in Windsor, and then when they moved to Arizona, they got me a piano teacher. So I, I sort of resisted it. I wasn't interested in it the first two, three years. But after that, uh, as I, I began to get involved at the church and singing with uh, some friends and relatives, uh, you know, I did get really bitten with the need to learn how to do it. 
so I'm glad that they forced me uh, in the early days. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it, yeah. Sometimes it, if they see that it's good for you, it's like giving you, uh, you know, good food or medicine. You gotta take it. <laughs> well, you make that, you make that kid eat those vegetables, and right. you know, at some point they can decide whether they like it or not. Yeah, they can, they can turn their nose up at it, but later on they'll look back and say, "Well, I may not go back to that, but at least I'm glad that they tried to help me." Oh, out. Oh, <laughs> sure, absolutely, and 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 it, yeah, they weren't trying to be mean or anything, of course. But uh, I really did not learn a lot in terms of sight reading to this day. I'm not a great sight reader. Uh, neither am I, I so I, I'm in that same boat. <laughs> I play by ear for the most part, but uh, my folks saw that, and then they got me a teacher when I was uh, about 15 when they moved back to Detroit. They got me a teacher for a, a year or two that uh, was excellent with technique and chord progression and things like that, and uh, really helped me develop style and how to play, you know, if you're going to play by ear. <laughs> yeah. Got to get past the one, four, five thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, they they certainly helped me that way. Now I'll tell you this: when I was sixteen, I met a guy named Larry O'Rell in Detroit. He had just uh, moved uh, from Dallas back to Detroit. He got married, and his dad was a promoter of gospel concerts in the Midwest, uh, a big promoter. Right. And and he was uh, wanting to form a group. He'd had a quartet for. Uh, I guess three years or so in the early 60s. And, in fact, I don't know if the name Jim Murray means anything to you, but he was with the Imperials for many, many years. Okay. Uh, Jim was a tenor in that quartet. And a, a, a guy who was a bass singer for many years in a group called the Florida Boys was in that group. And anyhow, they disbanded. Uh, he went to Dallas. He got married. He comes back to Detroit. He wanted to form a group. He started attending the church where my family went, and I was very active in that church. Uh, singing and playing with two or three groups, and, and uh, he heard me uh, and uh, came to me and said, look, I'm forming a gospel group, and uh, I'd be interested if you, you know, in having you be a part of it. And uh, my folks didn't want me to do that, because uh, oh. they, they knew I was going to start traveling and all that, and they were concerned about, you know, uh, letting me go. But, as a uh, teenager, yeah, that's got to be as a, a teenager. Yeah, big but, deal, but yeah. They, yeah, but they did. They had to release me to that, and and I'm thankful to them uh, and to God uh, that, that they were willing to do it. I mean, I, I literally finished high school as I was traveling so much I could barely do it, but my folks had to make that possible. Yeah. Was uh, Larry Arell uh, about the same age, or were you? was he older? No, Larry's older. He's like seven years older than me. Okay. And, uh, he was an only child, and so I kind of became his, his, uh, his brother, so to speak. And... Uh, he, he was one of my mentors, but but he opened a lot of doors. God used him to open big doors. Oh, uh, great! Yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. All these steps that lead up to a life that uh, I'm sure that you loved. Uh, I'm sure you loved the singing. Uh, it was a quartet that you were in. Uh, you joined these well, three people. It was actually uh, the group we put together uh, called the Orells was actually a, a trio. Right. Uh, three singers, and we had a bass player, and at times we had you know other musicians, but. Uh, I played the piano and sang, and one of our guys was pretty good with the guitar. And, uh, life on the road is is quite, quite a thing. You know, a lot of people go out and see gospel groups, singers, and bands, and mm-hmm. they just see they just see them on stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, you said it's quite a thing. Tell me about it. What for a young guy like yourself back then? What was it like touring all over the place? Well, the thing of it is, a lot of these groups, you know, they in that kind of gospel music in those days. Uh, there was this mindset that, well, hey, so you got a group, 
You want to stay busy? And I can tell you, Dean, I know right now, part-time gospel groups, they're almost as busy as full-time groups. Almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call them weekend warriors. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> people see a group on stage, you know, they're dressed to the minds, and, and mm-hmm. they've got everything together, and it sounds great. It looks glamorous. <laughs> but they're just, they're just seeing the very best of it. They don't see what's behind the scenes. They don't see the broken down buses and vans. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the sleepless nights and, and all of the, uh, and, and the financial difficulties because it's very difficult to survive uh, out there. I assume that, yeah, it's like that with all music, uh, performing, you know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the starving artist thing purifies the music. And, and, uh, we've all heard horror stories and, and uh, <laughs> you know, lived a few of them. Well, these other uh, three, the Orels, uh, was that their last name, or did they call themselves uh, that for some reason? No, there was, there, was, there was only one guy in the group named Orel, uh-huh. Larry Orel. Larry. Yeah, but, his, but his father was such a prominent, well-known promoter of concerts. Of course. Uh, he promoted uh, about uh, 40 to 50 uh, major concerts a year, mostly in big mid- Midwestern cities. Wow. And he would go into those towns three and four times a year. Sounds like a busy man. Yeah. Yeah, different lineups of talent. And, and because the promoter's kid, you know, got a group, uh, it's just the reason that we were going to get booked at least to open those things. And we did. And uh, since the group was singing mostly songs that I was writing, we got to pitch those songs from the stage so that these big name acts and artists could hear them and see the crowd's reaction to them. And that sure did a lot for my songwriting. So did you hit your wagon to these uh, th- this trio, and did they have a manager yep. that, that helped uh, you out? Yeah, we, we, were, uh, we were together uh, full-time for five years in a bus. And then uh, we, we disbanded, came back together a year and a half later, did another album. And then we, we sort of reorganized, called it Gordon Denson and Sunrise, and hired a couple other musicians. We worked part-time, like 60 days a year at Sunrise. And uh, there was a lot of fledgling Christian television in those days, and we were tapping into that constantly, and that was really the main reason why we were together for those last few years. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Bigger than all my problems, bigger than all my fears, God is bigger than any mountain that I can or cannot see. And He's bigger than all my questions, bigger than anything mentioned JD earlier uh, he, he's a reference point for a couple questions I wanted to ask now he tells me that in 1972 there was a uh, probably where you both met at some kind of convention for quartet singers that, that's correct yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he said there was a surprise but wasn't uh, really a surprise uh, who showed up that uh, I can tell people well here? 
Uh, I tell you, Dean, if it was 72 or not, I'm not positive on that. Uh-huh. Uh, it might have been a year or two before that. I'd have to go back and check. But it was in the last year that the National Quartet Convention was held in Memphis, Tennessee. That's how I, I remember it. Okay. The last year it was in Memphis. And that's where I met Baby. Uh-huh. So that was a long time ago. We talked like, uh, you know, 40 some odd years ago, 45. But the Stamps Quartet was backing Elvis Presley. Uh, the Imperials had done it for a while and, and others were involved, but the Stamps pretty much had the gig, so to speak. Okay. And J.D. Sumner was it was one of the owners at that time of the National Quartet. So anyway, it was at Ellis Auditorium and the place is jammed out, jammed to the walls, and uh, they've got a big lineup of you know, the hot groups at that time. Right. And J.D. had come out and said, well, later on tonight, a very special guest is going to make an appearance. And so a lot of people could do the math, you know. Uh, they had it figured out. <laughs> well, see, that's another reason I know it, I, I knew it was in Memphis, is because Elvis lived in Memphis. And uh, Elvis would come out to the convention and sit backstage. He loved that stuff, and he couldn't get enough of it. So anyway, he's back there. He's backstage, and so, you know, we've heard the rumor of Elvis hung around the back and and sure enough at some point uh jd comes out and announces that elvis presley is going to make an appearance but his contract will not allow him to speak or sing but you know and he introduced it so elvis comes out on the stage and this is what's really wild Dean, is he comes out in an elvis outfit i mean you know he was just there to listen in so but they must have told him we're going to have you come out on stage so he comes out in one of his elvis classic outfits right you know, and he he stands there, and then he starts to move, and he swoops around with his cape a few times, and <laughs> and, and I'm telling you, the crowd went nuts. Being. Oh yeah, of course they must. And uh, th- th- this is what was so strange in our memories of things. Good Dady and I were back there watching all this happen from the back of the auditorium. You know, an hour before, gospel groups been out there singing their tried and true material, little old ladies are waving hankies, you know. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, that whole crowd goes berserk with Elvis on stage, and it's like somebody picked the auditorium up and tipped it forward toward the stage, and people are amassing. I mean, they're rushing the stage, you know. <laughs> it's bedlam. It's, it's absolutely berserk. So at some point, they, they had to get him off the stage, and uh, <laughs> they did, and uh, it took a while for the crowd to settle down, for people to go back to their seats. And then there was another group called the Galileans had to follow that. Now, can you imagine following that? After, but, all, after all that, of course not. <laughs> yeah, well, they uh, they followed it. And, uh, you know, there's an old saying, and some of the people that were mentors to me in the gospel music business would say, well, if somebody has pushed the thing to its utter limit emotionally, you mm-hmm. know, you've got to destroy that. You've got to tear that down and start over. So uh, here comes the Galileans. They're introduced, and they come out on stage, and their spokesperson, his name is Paul Delaware, walks up to the microphone, and as best as I can remember, this is what he said. He said something like, uh, Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to sing some songs about the real king. Ah, very good. <laughs> I thought that was a great line. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to sing some songs about the real king. <laughs> so that, that could let some of the people that kind of, you know, got too far out there in left field, feel a little bit uh, Right, right. <laughs> Probably mesmerized by all the flash and... <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's, go ahead. That's my memory, and J.D. and I were there. Uh, 
Oh, that's got to be fun. I mean, 72, you're talking about uh, he was at the height of his powers, probably his last right. hurrah. You know, he had the aloha from Hawaii, and they made that movie about him, and, and yeah. he was wearing all those outfits back then. You know, that oh, had, yeah. He had the jumpsuit yeah. with the rhinestones or whatever and the cape. and the, Yeah, but Dean, Dean, as you well know, today, all over the world, there are Elvis impersonators who are wearing the same outfit. Right, with the TCB glasses and <laughs> and the mutton chops and this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I always think that you know they're they're doing it tongue in cheek, but I think they're serious when they they wouldn't be doing that if they really didn't uh, love the guy's uh, persona and what he stood for. They know? they did and they do and and they love it, but they know that people do too. And, and uh, it's the caricature aspect of Elvis that allows him to tap into that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Biggest star. <laughs> at that time. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was just. Uh, yeah. You told me a little bit about singing and everything. How'd you? Um, all these songs that you wrote. How did you get your career established as a songwriter? Assuming this is your profession, or or, well, or did you have another job as you were doing this? No. In fact, uh, I've only worked one job in my life where I actually punched the clock, and it didn't last long in my mid-teens. Uh, but this is what I've done all my life. When I started with the Rails. Uh, I had written a couple of songs. Uh, my first few songs, you'll never hear them. No, no one will ever hear them. That's pretty common, but, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> they're well, they're well protected in oblivion. But, but uh, you didn't destroy them, but you have them protected somewhere, huh? <laughs> locked away, perhaps. I don't yeah, know. but I was just starting to write, and uh, the first album our group did was on a Zondervan label. We did one of my songs. On the next one, we did four. On the next one, we did four. Hmm. And uh, the next one, for and after that we, we moved to Heartwarming Records at the Benson Company label, and uh, we started doing the entire album songs. And it's because you know the group heard the songs, they liked them, and and wanted to do them. And uh, one of my early songs was called Redemption Draw Time. Right, I've heard that. That's a great song. Thank you. That's that's really probably my signature song because that was that was way back. I mean, that song is, goes back to nineteen sixty. I, uh, 69. I wrote it in 69. And I was 18 years old. Years of time have come and gone since I first heard it told how Jesus won would come back again someday. And if back then it seems so real That I just can't help but feel How much closer His coming is today There's war and strife on every hand so much violence fills the land And still some people doubt That he will ever come again But the word of God is true That he will redeem his chosen few so don't lose hope Soon Jesus will descend Descend So 
Angels, and we recorded it on an album. And uh, a guy named Dwayne Allen, who uh, lead singer with the Oak Ridge Boys. Oh yes, that's why I heard him. Yeah, uh, at that time the Oak Ridge Boys were still still very much a gospel quartet, and uh, mm-hmm. but they had a publishing company, and Dwayne published that song, Redemption Draw Mine, another song called "The Coming of the Lord to Be Today." And, oh great! Uh, he was he was very good about placing material with just the right artist and. I mean, he did it with that song. That song uh, took off like a rocket. And uh, even to this day, that song gets recorded several times every year. Oh, what a great and, thing. Uh, it never stopped. In fact, I got a phone call uh, last summer from an attorney in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. It was a woman. She said, I represent the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And she said, I want permission to use your song, Redemption Draw of Night, next summer at our World Conference. In, uh, I think it's in San Antonio, and uh, I said, look, uh, you don't need my permission. That song's been published and out there for years, but please do it. <laughs> you know, by all means, you wow. go for it. Yeah. Well, that, that brings up a thing. I was curious about that, you know, publishing and permissions. You know, nowadays, like when, when I used to perform in my uh, folks' church, I would play the bass. We would look at all the stuff that had to be licensed through, uh, you know, CCLI and some of these licensing. You right. Know, you need to get permission, like today, for instance. If any of your songs, if I, you know, would I, as a performer in church, need to get permission to uh, get a song of yours? Say, you see a lot of this stuff on YouTube now where they record it in their church and then they put it up there. Is that no, a, no, you, is that you, a you, no-no or do you got to come no, to somebody no, for no, that? No, 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 uh, By all means, do it. Uh, the rule of thumb is, uh, Dean, and, and you may well know this, is that when you write a song, let's say you're, you're your own publisher okay. or any other publishing company picks it up. The publisher has the right of refusal on the first recording. In other words, they can forbid anybody to do it except who they want to do it the very first time, the very first recording of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like when Glenn Campbell did Wichita Line. Or right. They had, they had the power to decide he's the one who's going to do it first. But once it's out there, anybody can record it any time of the day or night. All they have to do is get a simple mechanical license from the publisher like anybody else. Okay. And uh, it's fair game. You know, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, they take care of the, of the public performance for profit, you know, the, uh, in fact, the YouTube thing and all of that. Okay. Uh, that's, that's their department. So for the singer, they probably just have to go online, go find how you get a license real quick, a mechanical license to... Well, the mechanical license is only you know, for uh, a physical recording. You're putting it on a CD or, you know, uh-huh. some kind of a, you know... It used to be vinyl records and then cassettes. <laughs> now it's CDs and yes, yeah. Say I were to, say I were to take one of your songs and record it here at home, do a cover version of that or whatever, and then uh, I could put it out there for people to listen to. But then I'd have to make sure somehow well, you you get the credit the, or it has to be licensed, right? Well, the mechanical license is only for the physical recordings that you would sell. Uh, as far as putting it on YouTube or anything else like that, you you can go ahead and do that because. Uh, YouTube is uh, going to deal with, with those publishers, whether it's through ASCAP or BMI or whoever, mm-hmm. uh, sound exchange of those various companies. But uh, actually, you know, you don't have to have permission to you know, go to your church and sing any song we've got. In fact, we want you to. <laughs> Sounds like I'm harping on that a little too much, but I, you know, as far as ASCAP, you know, you hear stories of how they'll, they'll come after you if, uh, <laughs> if they find well, out or they'll shut you down or, you know, that kind of stuff if you're doing it wrong. Yeah. There's a few uh, horror stories out there, but, but they're not going to mess with yeah. churches. 
Well, yeah, I see. You know, make... Christian people want to get paid just like anybody else do. <laughs> well, only if, only if we're entitled to it. But, but you know what, Dean? I would a whole lot rather have churches doing this stuff than not doing it. And that's the end of side one. If this were a cassette, I'd say, you know, flip over and let's play side two. We're going to have to do that next week. So thanks to the great Gordon Jensen. And we will see you next week with part two of this interview. Have a great day, a great weekend. Put your best pen forward. Let's all be strong writers together. My name is Dean Olson for Strong Rider on the Radio. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Strong Rider on the Radio with your host, Dean Olson, on the amazing women and men of power, the world's leading positive programming network powered by Raven International.